Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan, hello, and from The Athletic, here is Phil Hay. Hello and Merry Christmas. And uh, remotely today, from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello, I know it's not a great Christmas. Well, yeah, Christmas has been sort of cancelled, so we were talking last week about plans to go see the in-laws. Phil, you were going to bestow athletic subscriptions on them all, and that one's off the table now. Yeah, I was also going to wind them up about the Newcastle result, which I'll have to, to do remotely. But no, Christmas in Yorkshire for us, which is um, which is no bad thing. But yes, um, one of those weekends, wasn't it? Plenty of reading time on your hands, so get yourself an athletic subscription and you can give another one for free as a gift for Christmas. If you've got a football fan in your life and you're scratching around not knowing what to buy for them, this is the thing to get. You get all Phil's writing, you get the analysis, the in-depth features, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Perfect gift at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Well, due to Christmas, we are recording on Monday late morning. So the Man United game is fresh in our memories Michael and I recorded the match ball, the square ball podcast last night, and it was a, sli- a slightly more jolly affair than we thought it might be. Pick that one apart f- uh, for us then, Phil. What what do you take from last night? I felt that the reaction to it was good, actually. I- I've seen multiple meltdowns on Twitter, and I have to say that I've seen many that have been far more severe than yesterday's, which you know is, I-, I think is, a- is an encouraging sign because... You wait 16 years for that fixture in the league and then it's almost game over after three minutes and certainly game over after 20 minutes. And there was a lot to criticise in it. There were bits of it that were good as well. There was lots to like, I thought, about the way that that Leeds managed to make a game of it, even at at 4-0. And when we asked Bielsa afterwards, what did you say at halftime? He said, I told them that we need to fight for this right to the last minute, regardless of the result. And essentially, regardless of how many goals are flying in, you need to keep playing. There was never any thought of tying it up at 4-0 and making sure that it didn't get worse. And I think it's the first time watching Bielsa that at 4-0, you know, or or the game at a certain point, I did think to myself, I wonder actually if he does need to just abandon a few things here to make sure that this doesn't get extremely ugly. The first note on this sheet, which is interesting actually, because I was discussing this with people in in my office uh, after the game last night, is where the Leeds played the occasion rather than the game. And, and there was a lot of talk in the build-up. There was a lot of talk from us. You know, I can't pretend it was only coming from from the club, but Bielsa spoke at length about the importance of, of matches like this and the significance of them. That lovely quote, I thought, where he was saying, you know, if, if you ask supporters at Newell's Old Boys, do you want to be champions of South America or would you rather beat Rosario Central? They'd rather be champions of South America until the point at which they're playing Rosario Central and then nothing matters more than the game. And and that, you know, I think is probably how it feels when, when Manchester United comes around as well. But you had Phillips talking about it kind of winding everybody up and making sure everybody in the dressing room knew what, what this meant. He's a Leeds fan, Cooper's a Leeds fan. There are plenty in the dressing room who aren't and, and who might not be quite aware of, of how strong the rivalry is. He was sort of joking that he was going to go around giving Rafinha a clip round the ear just to make sure that, that he understood what this involved and that there were no misconceptions. But as we were saying in the office last night, it's a little bit like the burnout theory. You can see two goals early on and it's very easy to just drop onto the, the narrative of, well, they're playing the occasion rather than the game. And, and in practice, what does that actually mean? You know, was the preparation poor? Were the heads elsewhere? I, I think that would probably be quite a cheap accusation to, to throw at them. Essentially, it, it went wrong tactically very, very quickly. And, you know, so quickly that, that within three minutes, it was two goals for McTominay and, and already you, you kind of started to fear the worst. And, 
there's plenty for us to to chat over there and and to pick apart. Um, I think in a lot of ways it, it was classic Bielsa, really, wasn't it? it? It didn't work as it should have done. It was a heavy defeat, but actually, in the end, it could easily have finished six all. As a Scotsman, I guess you've seen quite a bit of McTominay. Were you expecting this from him? No, not at all. <laughs> I I said on um, I said on Twitter that he seemed to have turned into into Zidane um, <laughs> with with the worst timing possible. I don't I don't think um, McTominay is a, a poor player by any stretch, and I think he's definitely Premier League standard. I've always just had him in the sort of Tom Cleverley bracket of somebody who will play for Manchester United for a while, but will probably continue his career elsewhere um, when they invest and and bring in others. But I don't think it was purely down to him that, that it went wrong in the first couple of minutes. That Solskjaer, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of Solskjaer and I don't particularly rate him as, as a coach, but he did work it out yesterday in the sense that he, he realised that what Manchester United had to do was to pull the midfield, stretch the midfield, move Phillips around in particular, and to do that using Fernandez, who Phillips was going to stick to like glue. And, and through those tactics, they were able to open up the midfield to give McTominay the run on clique um, a couple of times to create the space. I mean, even if you look at, at the third goal, it begins with the loss of possession on halfway, but there's also a clever little move from Hernandez to pull Phillips out to the left wing. And because of that, Fred is able to drive a, a coaching horses through Bielsa's midfield and it all gets out of shape again. And, and ultimately, Fernandez bangs that one in beyond Mesley and and it's, it's game over. Tactically, Solskjaer, did find a way to get it right yesterday, and I think I don't think there was there was luck involved in the fact that Manchester United won that or did that early on. They, they'd clearly planned for that, and and I think aside from the low block and aside from being incredibly negative and and very defensive, the other way you can get it at Bielsa's team and Chelsea showed this as well is by essentially backing yourself to to take advantage of the man marking system and, and backing yourself to be able to beat the press and to get through that midfield I actually think Man- um, Chelsea did it better than Manchester United because you didn't feel at Stamford Bridge that it was it was 3-1 going on at all whereas you know as, as dangerous as Manchester United were there were a lot of chances at their end of the field and that fantastic save from Rafinha by De Gea which is as, as good as you'll see all season there were again little moments where the game could have turned or, or could have been different but I think to ship that number of chances at Old Trafford you, you're never going to get anything from it really in terms of the play and the occasion and not the game, I did ask that as the opening question on the post-match podcast that we did with the square ball straight after the game. And what I meant by that was that you wonder if maybe some of the players had bought in too much to the occasion and maybe had got caught up in the surroundings in a, in a stadium that size and the, the scale of the tie and maybe, you know, Phillips feeding their head a little bit might have been slightly counterproductive. I don't know. And, you know, what it can do is can cause players to switch off a little bit and, maybe not engage fully in the task at hand because they're sort of uh, a little bit in awe of the, the the fixture and the surroundings. I don't know. It's, it's possible. But just a little bit too much rushing through your veins as the game kicks off. I, I did wonder in the build-up whether there would be that buzz and there would be that electricity about it. But actually, when you wandered out into Old Trafford and there was no crowd at all and, and it's it's just dead flat roundabout, whether that subsides a little bit and it actually starts to feel like any other fixture because most fixtures kind of feel the same this season there's the backdrop to them all and there are different plots and there are different rivalries but you are talking about completely deserted grounds that don't give you the same kind of buzz I mean I I can't speak for for anybody who follows Leeds but I wonder whether it'll actually hurt a little bit less yesterday on the basis that nobody was there for starters there hadn't been the scramble for tickets in the build-up people hadn't spent all day traveling over there and and traveling back or, or all day in the pub with their mates everybody is at home 
and you do feel a bit disengaged. I mean, to give you an example, the, the Scottish Cup final was on yesterday as well and Hearts were playing in that. But this is a, a final that had been played six months late, um, should have been played last season. No, Nobody at the ground, so none of your friends are going. Guys would normally be at the game, not there. It doesn't feel the same and, and you don't have the same kind of emotional investment, which doesn't mean that you know a result like that at Old Trafford isn't going to hurt. It just doesn't feel as authentic a kind of rivalry and, and fixture as it would do if, if everybody was, you know, properly, properly invested in it. Michael made a similar point about it being the same when you were a kid, you know, going into school and there's always a Man United fan there ready to wind you up. And when you become an adult, it's the same as going into work. But because we're not really all, you know, working in offices these days, we're all working remotely. Everyone's, you know, in some form of lockdown or social restrictions. And the, the worst of it is probably a WhatsApp group or something like that, which you can just easily mute or ignore the the jibes that are in that. So it didn't hurt me as much in that regard. I mean, my stepbrother is a Man United fan, but he's not been stupid enough to message me. He knows. Well, I, I said to somebody earlier on um, on Twitter who was asking me about it, in comparison to, say, the 6-0 defeat at Hillsborough back under McDermott, it was absolute murder after that game. And yeah, I was describing Twitter as one big massive fat whack because that's what it was. It was just a case of kill everybody because... There is nothing to to take out of this. Bielsa's got so much credit in the bank at Leeds that you can almost you can almost feel a bit of sympathy or a bit empathetic with him, even after a result like that. The sort of result that would get most coaches a kick in. I think you're inclined to say, and it, it it comes back to the reality with Bielsa, which is that playing that way, these things are going to happen. You know, in the same way as it did against Leicester and and against Palace, there's always the risk that you go somewhere like Old Trafford and and you do concede six. You know, thinking about it last night, I just thought without him, with a, a different manager, you'd potentially go there and concede only two. But then with a different manager, you probably wouldn't be in this division anyway. And we'd, we'd still be travelling away to Wickham and Derby and, and Forest. Uh, so, you you know, you, you have to suck it up and you've got to go with it. I think longer term, it can't be the case, however long Bielsa stays here for, it can't be the case that these results come around regularly. You can't keep on conceding six goals, four goals, five goals, um, just because that's the way you play. You you want to develop to a point where you're such a good team that regardless of your tactics, it's almost impossible to do that against you. But if we're being honest about the Christmas period and, and this little run, it was Newcastle, Man United, Burnley, West Brom. It seems from a rivalry point of view, it's clear which game you'd want to win out of those four. But I think in the, the context of the bigger picture, of establishing themselves in the Premier League and of making this a steady season. It seems pretty obvious to me which games they had to take something from. I think the lack of panic probably stems from the fact that there's a certain amount of understanding, and see if you agree with me, a certain amount of understanding that this is, to a very large extent, a championship squad with a few sprinklings of magic on top of it, some of which are injured right now. And our fans seem to broadly understand that this is a bunch of players who are playing at or very close to their maximum all the time and that there are, as the saying goes, it's a very popular saying, levels to this game and we had those levels exposed and shown to us in the worst way possible at Old Trafford. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned injuries. It levels um, at a time when Bielsa isn't able to field what would be a recognisable defence and clearly Liam Cooper has gone off yesterday, um, abductor injury. We're just waiting to hear how severe it is. I think he's due to, to undergo scans later. And he has, didn't have a great game yesterday. He, I think, has looked a bit stretched at, at points this season without any question. But again, is adapting to the league and, and needs the chance to adapt. And I try not to forget that it is only three months since the season started and it is only two and a half months since the last transfer window closed, window in which they've 
the kind of dropped a hundred million quid on the squad via the the investment in the signings they made. So you do look for progress and and you do want to advance, but it has to be a process and it is going to be gradual. And I think the position they're in at the moment, the points they've taken and and the way they're playing, I I do think they've taken a step forward from the championship. Clearly the defensive record is considerably worse, but it was always going to be because teams are playing against them in different ways. The opposition in this division have a far more quality and far more threat going forward and, and a far more willing certainly at a certain level of the league, to take risks against them. Bielsa could go through a championship season and find that a handful of teams at best would try and take his own on and, and play them at their own game. In the Premier League, it's a bit more like that. And people were saying it, it was counter-attacking yesterday and it was a low block from, from Man United. There, there was a degree of that, but not in the way that we had from Leicester or from Palace and, and even West Ham. They they did push higher up the field. They did back themselves more to outplay Leeds. And ultimately, it it went their way. But yeah, in 18 months time or two years time, you want to be able to look back and say that the step between the championship to where they are at that stage has has been pretty vast and and has been pretty significant. I think to expect a huge amount more than this three months on from from the season starting would be be really unrealistic. And I feel like they're in a good place. I I feel like the Newcastle game demonstrated their ability to get back on the the wagon pretty quickly. And you'd hope that that'll happen again against Burnley. We just have to do it enough times that it doesn't become a problem across the season, I guess. Just to, just to pull on the thread there about the style of play, and I'll, I'll ask this question to you, Michael. Do you think we have a bit of a problem at Leeds? Because part of the, the hype about Man United this season is that they start games slowly, and we saw the polar opposite of that against us at Old Trafford. We saw Chelsea run themselves into the ground and then subsequently haven't been able to win games since. Do we have a problem in that the style of football is so unique that it's provoking some unique responses from opposition managers. So it's almost even harder to predict what's going to happen for us. There's no real definable shape or form to a lot of these games. I feel like we're getting punished in games where opposition players are good enough to do it. I feel like Vardy, lots of Chelsea players, lots of Man United players are the bonds that have really had the run against us this season. I feel like overall, regardless of what people try to do, our system can generally overcome it. And, and to look at a game like yesterday, it was it, you can look upon it as a complete system failure because of the way the result ended up. But if you compare it to the Liverpool game at the start of the season when we took our chances, they missed a few chances. And essentially everyone left that saying how good we were and how brilliant a performance it had been. I'm not sure there's as much difference between the big defeats and the big wins as we maybe like to think at the end of the day. What I thought was quite telling was Bielsa obviously flagged up um, Chelsea's physical performance and the, and the the kind of massive improvement compared to their average this season against Leeds and and people who watched the game yesterday will probably have noticed the the distance run stats which had Man United and Leeds almost exactly level at a late point in in the second half so in answer to your question you could draw the conclusion from that that other opposition managers are saying to the players you need to run yourselves to death today because if you don't you're going to get overrun by this team. And I think in the case of both Lampard and Solskjaer, they seem to take the attitude that if the players were able to do that and if they were able to match Leeds physically, then the quality of the individual players in their team was going to tell. Um, I certainly got that impression from Solskjaer after the game last night. Lampard said very much the same um, after the game down at Stamford Bridge. And and that is where Leeds are going to get caught out. If, as Bielsa said, if, if they can't make the opposition worse then from time to time, they are going to come up against squads. I mean, Michael mentioned Vardy there, and, and he's a great example. Squads and players who 
are going to do damage against them because they are that good. And that's the reality of it. And I don't think it can be a coincidence that, that Man United's running stats were on, on a par with Leeds and they've won that game pretty comfortably. It it can't be a coincidence either that Chelsea's were very close to Leeds and they won that game comfortably down at, at Stamford. More comfortably, I think. I, I think Chelsea's performance was far more complete and, and far better overall than the Manchester United's. But ultimately, Leeds deserve to lose both games. And, you know, there are statistical reasons behind, you know, to explain why that was. Last week, your one to watch was Calvin Phillips again. You picked him as, as something we should keep an eye on during this game and whether he could uh, keep things tight in midfield. As it was, the battle probably swung on the fact that he kept getting pulled out wide and therefore a big gap kept opening up in front of our defence in that first half. Would like to get your thoughts on the halftime substitutions. Click and Phillips both going off. Two players have been the absolute you know, cornerstone of our successes this season, but both of them on four yellow cards yesterday. So was that, in your opinion, a bit of pragmatism by Bielsa or was it purely tactical? Because we spoke about this again on post-match and we couldn't make our mind up. He said it was purely tactical and I, I don't really see him doing that. I don't see him withdrawing play. He, he will take players off as he did with strike down at Villa because they're on a yellow card and, and in danger of, of getting sent off. But the, the reason for that is that it leaves you 10 against 11 and, and significantly disadvantaged. I mean, in the past, he's been in, in situations where he's had players on the verge of one match ban or two match ban and he's never let that sway his selection policy. I mean, you, Phillips could sit on a yellow card, four yellow cards for weeks and weeks and weeks and, and you can't not play him and you can't hold him back on the basis that at some point that yellow card might come. That's just the, the flow of the game. I think it was a reasonable decision to replace both of them because to my mind, that's where the, the problem had been. There were errors at the back and there were bits of defending that weren't great, but most of that was coming from the pressure that was building because Phillips wasn't really able to marshal the midfield and, and Cleek seemed to be, certainly in the early stages, a yard behind McTominay who was obviously causing a, a bit of havoc coming forward. But he also said it happened because obviously he had um, Hernandez on the bench so that would have been a, a different way to go. There were other players who he, he could have taken off, could have shuffled it around in a different way. There was Paveda who could have come on. He was saying that as it was, he, he actually wanted to make his midfield a little bit more defensive and he didn't mean that he wanted the team to be more negative. I think what he meant was he he wanted to create more of a platform to play from and, and to attack from and, and to, I guess, for Leeds to reassert themselves. And I, I know they did dominate possession overall, but to, to properly dominate it and to properly turn the screw and to have long periods of, of pressure in which um, Manchester United weren't really able to to produce very much. I guess the, the, the one thing that you could look at and the one thing you could query is in certain games, is a, a midfield unit of Rafinha, Harrison, Rodrigo and Cleek is that enough ahead of Phillips, you know, in, from a defensive point of view? Is that too ambitious? Is that too attacking? Does it get the balance right when you have players coming on to you like Fernandez and, and Rashford ahead of him and, and everything else? Is is there the support that Phillips needs? Because it did feel in those 20 minutes like they were getting completely overrun in that area. And and with the best will in the world, I think it's unlikely that, that players like Rodrigo or Rafinha are going to make a difference in that sense. You know, they, they aren't defensively minded. But again, it, it takes us back to... Bielsa's philosophy and, and his ethos, is, which is that he wants Leeds to attack. He wants them to have that in their heads. And and you are talking with Rafinha and, and Rodrigo about expensive and, and very, very high high quality players. So the, the bottom line is it, it didn't work. I think you'll be able to see why it didn't work. But you're, you're heading now into two very, very different games with Burnley and West Brom. I think when you look at the how porous the midfield was as well, it, you need an incredibly strong defence behind that. And that is nothing like our strongest team at the back, is it? So 
you do wonder how that game pans out with Ailing at right back and Cock and Lorenzo at centre back and maybe a, a new left back not to have a go at Alioski because I think he's done he's done an admirable job there in the in the main but it's a long way off a, a perfect defence. To put it simply, I think the players would love to have that game again. I think they'd love to have it again and to get through the first five ten minutes without you know giving Manchester United such a such a big advantage and and such a a step forward towards winning it. It's not to say that they would have won it regardless and, and it's not to say that Leeds would have got anything out of it in the end. But I think there are ways in which that game could have been very, very different. Two final thoughts then in this section. First one is related to what Bielsa said in the post-match about the reaction being that Leeds United must change style. He said that's what the reaction will be. Do Leeds United need to change style? Well, the reaction is always going to be that. And, and you were getting a little bit of that after Palace and Leicester, you know, the idea that he needs a plan B, which as I always say is, it it's a valid discussion. It's just that given that he's never going to impose a plan B, is there any point in spending time talking about it? I mean, I, I was saying to you before I came on air, and, and I think I might have mentioned this earlier, that there will come a point with Bielsa where too many of results like this are, are going to frustrate people and you'll you know further down the line where you expect Leeds to have evolved and to have improved and, and to have grown in, in strength you would be concerned if these were coming around indefinitely you know if you kept coming back to, to heavy defeats like this but given that season's in its infancy and, and Leeds are so new to the division I, I don't really have any great issue with what went on yesterday I think it's it's only fair to analyse it properly and pick out the things that went wrong and, and the faults in it um, and that 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 kind of has has to be done. But he was very aware of that and he clearly is aware of what is said about his team and the way people view it. And it was, I thought he was bang on really, where he said, when you play like this and it works, you almost can't walk around for the praise that's weighing you down. But as soon as it goes wrong, the criticism comes. And he said, you know, that's something we've got to take on board. But I think what he actually meant was that's just something we've got to put up with and, and something we've, we've got to live with. Because I don't think when he said, we'll take that on board, he was suggesting that, it was tempting him to change. I think on the contrary, it's probably making him think that he'd rather redouble his effort with this and continue to play in the way that he does. But he said there'll be this this idea that we should be, as he put it, more petty in the way that we play, that we sh- shouldn't be protagonists in the way that we are. And that's just not him. You know, it just isn't him. And, and as we've said many, many times, you have to accept all this with Bielsa because this comes with the package there's no change to his mindset. There's no difference week to week in, in the way that, that Leeds play. And it'll be like that until the, the day when he finishes up here. I also contrast it with the other game last night, which was West Brom conceding three, one shot on target, having a man sent off. And I don't see any broad suggestions that Sam Allardyce needs to change his style. People just accept that it's aggressive and it's defensive and that occasionally no shots and a man sent off is the result of that. It's, it's different ways of doing things. It's just that Bielsa's going punch for punch with a top side is slightly terrifying to watch that I think makes makes people think it needs to change. There's all, it's also true to say that if you take Guardiola as an example, he's been criticised quite a lot for the fact that in certain games that they play, particularly in the Champions League, but also I think quite no, notably against Liverpool as well, who've become big, big rivals to City for you know all the, all the major trophies, certainly domestically, but also in Europe as well. He does try to mix things about and, you know, I've seen him go to Anfield and, and use different tactics, more conservative tactics, you know, change things around. And in a lot of ways, the idea that being adaptable and, and being versatile is, is a virtue, which for what it's worth, I think it is from time to time, hasn't really drawn him any credit. You know, on the contrary, when they've 
dropped points at Anfield or they've lost games, the reaction has been to say, well, why didn't he just play as City normally play? Why didn't they just back themselves to win in the way that they normally win and, and do what they normally do? So in a lot of respects, you, you're on a hiding to nothing and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. I just, I, I think, like I say, let's go back to go back to this. If you know you over a sustained period of time, you're consistently taking heavy defeats like this, then you know it is very fair to say that perhaps something needs to change or or something needs to to improve. But I'm with Bielsa at the moment. I I would stick with this because I think in in the main, and he's going to stick with it anyway. But in the main, it it seems to be serving them well. And the final question that extends from that, and I'll put this to you first, Michael, and then you, Phil. All things being equal, and despite what happened yesterday, would you rather have Bielsa in charge or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Don't ask daft questions. I was going to say the same, really. I, I, it pro- it's probably easier to answer that between Leeds and Newcastle, for example, because I, I don't think anybody in a million years would trade what Newcastle have got for what Bielsa is producing at Leeds. You might get a slightly different reaction from over the Pennines because they are starting to get themselves in, in the mix in the Premier League. But I still feel that there's a project and there's a, a kind of complete system here and a complete plan for for what's going on. I, I still, and I might be wrong here, but I still feel as if there's a bit of winging it going on at Old Trafford. And as I said last week before the game, that with Solskjaer, every time the fire looks like burning him, something happens that just keeps him going. But you're kind of waiting for the point further down the line at which this all does finally fall apart. And, and he goes and people reflect on the fact that it, he was probably never really made for the job in the sense of, of winning the sort of trophies that they expect to win over there. So long and short answer of that, I would have Bielsa every day of the week. To look at it another way, where does Solskjaer take our squad in the championship? To Wickham. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Something we touched on there in part one, the transfer window. Phil, it reopens again in another week, even though it only closed uh, a couple of months ago. It's been a strange one in that regard, hasn't it? Yeah, this is football basically trying to to reset itself so I don't know how many clubs and managers would feel like they need the window to come round as quickly as it has but eventually you've got to get back into the calendar routine of a window in January and a window that runs from May until early August rather than early October as it was. January is not a, a month that Leeds are particularly keen on and, and neither is Bielsa um, and if you look at his signings since he's come in Without forgetting that he he tried and came very close to signing Dan James um, in his first January window, he's only signed one senior outfield player in both of the the Januarys that he's had, and that was Augustine from RB Leipzig. Obviously, they they brought in Ian Paveda from Manchester City last January as well, but you know, Paveda took a long time to get into the the first team fold, and it is very young, and and you couldn't in any way say that he was an experienced signing coming in. But aside from that, it's been Kiko Casilla back in in the first. 
January window and it feels, I mean actually once you get into the Premier League and certainly at the higher end of the Premier League, it seems to me that there's less and less interest in doing business at this time of year. It, it seems that the strategy of your clubs like Liverpool and, and Manchester City is far more to get things done in the summer when the window and the and the length of the market gives you more time to negotiate and allows things to be a bit more stable rather than the, the four-week road rash that you have in January. And, and Leeds are very much of that mindset as well. I think there are a few reasons for that. I mean, the first is that obviously they've spent... 100 million or, or invested, committed 100 million to players in the summer. And on that basis alone, that was done with a, a view to making sure that come January and potentially come next summer as well, the expenditure didn't need to be so high and, and there wouldn't be any real urgency for, for signing, certainly at the midway point of this season. And on top of that, to use Augustine as the, the best example, it, it is difficult to blend yourself into this lead squad mid-season. It is difficult to blend yourself into a group of players who for the best part now of three years have been acclimatising to the to Bielsa's methods of conditioning and training and have, have very much got up to speed with it. And as Augustine found, and, and perhaps there are, there are plenty of other players out there who actually would have made a better fist of it, but because his fitness was never quite right and because getting up to speed was, was too much of a challenge, he, he barely featured and Leeds now find themselves in this situation where somebody who played for all of 48 minutes, I think it was in, in total, could potentially cost them a lot of money if, if FIFA rule against them in this arbitration case that, that RB Leipzig have brought over Augustine. So if it was a quiet window, I think they'd be pretty happy. Certainly from speaking to people at the club, I don't get the impression that Bielsa is banging the drum at all for, for new signings. What I think they will do, and Author is, is pretty good at this, is be aware and, and have their eyes open for opportunities that come up that, that are too good to miss. So like with Rafinha, who was suddenly made available by Wren and was on the last weekend of the, the summer window, was there to be had and, and Leeds got in there and, and did the deal for £17 million. I think if something comes up that they like and something comes up that is worth doing, regardless of whether it's going to be an immediate impact signing or, or whether it's something that they 100% need right at this point, they have shown before that they will do it and they will invest like that. But I, I'm pretty sure when Keneal was on here with, with you recently, he was saying that it was going to be a quiet window. The kind of direction from the club doesn't seem to have changed as of this point. Yeah, the things we took from speaking to Angus were that number one, expect a quiet window. Number two, the club will always take an opportunity if it presents itself, as you just uh, hinted towards there, Phil, but expect a quiet window. And the other big takeaway was Leeds plan two windows ahead. So anything that we did uh, in January now is really with a view to the summer, to all intents and purposes. Yeah, Kinnears was saying to us that they hoped that the investment they made in the summer would set them up not just for this season, but for next season too, which isn't the same as saying that they wouldn't do any business in the, in the windows that followed. But essentially that the, the nuts and bolts of the squad and the spine of the team should be there, which means that there won't need to be much in the way of major, major changes, major surgery at any point. I mean, clearly, if Bielsa was to say go at the end of this season, if he decided that one year was enough for him in the Premier League and, and you were to have a change of head coach, then you would have a slight change of ideas and a, a change of direction and, and perhaps things would, would alter on the transfer front slightly. But yeah, I mean, when I speak to Otter about transfers and he always says that they have right the way through the season a, a preferred 11 of players that they want to sign. So in all the positions, a kind of first choice of if if we had to go out and get a goalkeeper, who would be the goalkeeper we wanted to sign if we had to go and get a central midfielder or a right back? Who at the moment on our list is the number one choice? And, and it changes constantly and sometimes players have to come out because they'll sign a new contract or the form dips or they'll move to a different club and, and they're no longer 
available and it's it, it's a sort of movable feast. But somebody like Robin Koch, for example, had been on the fringes of Otter's ideal team for ages. I mean, like literally uh, three years before he signed, three and a half years, because they, they have this going on in the background. And, you know, that is recruitment these days. Somebody that you watch, as they did with Koch for the first time back in 2017, comes to the club in 2020 um, and it's been a transfer that, you know, without being worked on constantly, has, has almost been, you know, three, three and a half years in the making. And I think what Kinnear's saying, it, it sounds impressive, but it, it is actually true. You know, it's not just the case of getting to January and thinking, right, what do we do now for this, you know, for this season and, and for the state of players as we stand? It's more a case of what do we do that is going to benefit us in 18 months or two years' time. And you see that in the age of the players they sign. It's a it's a pretty young squad. Recruitment in the main tends to target players who are in the, the low 20s, if, if not their teens, to make sure that there's residual value there and scope to develop. And the reason it was different last January was because Nketiah went back early, early from his loan uh, from Arsenal. That was supposed to run to the end of the season. In Bielsa's head, it was going to run to the end of the season. And on that basis, he wasn't really interested in en- doing anything in January, but as soon as um, Nketiah went, there was obviously the move for Shea Adams, which came to nothing. And then at the, the last stages of the window where they needed a centre forward, it was Augustine who who they went for. But as I say, with Bielsa, you you never get the sense that this is a time of year where he wants things to change drastically, and 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 also where he wants to be particularly distracted by transfers. So we understand it's always a work in progress, but what would we do to the squads if we were given the opportunity to do something in this window? I mean, would you do something in this window, Michael? The prospect of Phillips and Click both being suspended at the same time does make me think we need to get some more reinforcements in the centre and midfield. And that, I mean, that is an area where we do seem to be lacking a little bit. Dallas can obviously fill in there, but he can only, the thing with Dallas is he can only ever fill in one position at once. We seem to have him as cover for several at any given time, which is a bit of a risky move, I suppose, to to have someone who can only play in any, in any one position at any one given game. So I guess central midfield, but. If you ask Bielsa that, I suspect he'll say Forshaw's not far off fitness. We've got Pascal Stroiker who can come in and do a job. And I think, if anything, what Phil has just listed there of all transfer windows, sometimes it is better to do nothing rather than the wrong thing. I agree about the centre of midfield. I think he would also add Shackleton to that when it comes to players who can play in there. But I do feel as if they are short. In terms of proven players, which I think quite regularly you do need in the Premier League, it, it is a, a different level. And I think it becomes, it's not impossible to rely on 23s at this level, but I think it becomes harder depending on, on the fixtures. That is certainly someone, someone, someone in the sort of eight to 10 mould that, that Cleek is in, I, I think would be beneficial. There is for sure in the background, but you know, we're well over a year now since he last played. And irrespective of the number of times that we think for sure is getting there or, or, or is just about at the point of, of returning, it hasn't happened and, and the months tick on. And, you know, I start to wonder with Forshaw whether there might come a point at which it's beneficial for him to go on loan when he gets fit, just to, to get the feeling of matches back in his legs rather than having to bomb into the Premier League cold, which would be a big ask. And left back as well. I mean, Bielsa seems happy with, with what he's got at left back, which is essentially a right winger stroke right back in, in Stuart Dallas. You know, I mean, Dallas was absolutely an out and out winger when he came from from Brentford back when Uwe Rosler signed him in, in 2015 and clearly he's been very versatile and, and he's moved around but you are talking about a right footer there and even though I, I think a lot of Dallas's performances are very good and he's been a really safe pair of hands there it, it does seem to me that in the Premier League fullbacks 
and specialist fullbacks are a particularly key position and also a really key position in Bielsa's team. You know, his his tactics do depend heavily on on how well his his fullbacks play and how well they they overlap. And and aside from Dallas, he's got Alioski there who defensively I, I never feel is is particularly solid. I, I don't have a, a huge problem with, with Alioski. I, I think he's he's always been a useful asset in the squad. But to my mind that it there will come a point further down the line at which Leeds will want to have an, an out and out left back stroke left wing back there. Somebody, you know, someone who always springs to mind to me is Sessignon down at Spurs who who went on loan to Hoffenheim and, and I don't think would be available. But the sort of player just off the top of my head who, who I think would would fit in really nicely. Uh, but again, Bielsa seems pretty content with how it is there. Seems seems happy, doesn't seem to have, have too much of, of a problem. So it's another of those scenarios where we are all kind of sitting tuned the fact saying, yeah, that would be good, that would be good. You know, a bit of depth there would, would be useful. But I suspect that in the coach's office, this probably isn't being discussed in, in too great a detail. In contrasting this transfer window with the, the ones we've seen in the Championship where it's felt like we've needed to bring players in, do you think things are going to change drastically in this window because we're 14th and on 17 points rather than 18th and on 10 points. That always makes a difference, although it would still come down to Bielsa to decide on that. And and even if, you know, Otter, Kinnear, Radrizani were looking at the table and thinking we really do need additions here, we need extra resources, they would need Bielsa to be on board before they could do it. I mean, I, I don't imagine that he, if, if Leeds had been in trouble at this stage, I don't imagine he'd have been wholly resistant to that because he, you would hope that he'd have been able to see the woods for the trees. But it comes down to performances with Bielsa rather than results. And he doesn't always equate good results to good performances. He doesn't always equate you know, a good position in the league as being a demonstration of the fact that his team are playing well. And, and the same is true in reverse. I think the biggest difference is probably, and, and you know, like I say, it does limit the need for investment when you're, you're sitting in you know, a relatively comfortable spot in the table. But the big difference is that because promotion was so essential, and especially in that second season where you just you just couldn't see a way in which Bielsa was going to commit to a third year, even though he was kind of given the impression before promotion that he, he might be open to the third year in the championship on a reduced wage, you knew that Leeds were going to struggle to be as competitive in a third year. It, you know, they had to go up last season. It just had to had to pay off. And because of that, when you got round to January and the, the results at that point, as they were last year, were, were a little bit iffy. There is that twitchiness, that feeling of if we don't do something and this goes wrong, we're potentially going to regret it. And, you know, they, they might end up regretting Augustine from a financial point of view because it could cost them a lot of money for a player who, who's contributed nothing. But I think you understood the rationale for them wanting to to do that and want to make sure that, that a centre forward was was through the door. Given that there isn't anything in the, the way of the same kind of target this season, you know, it, it isn't a case of you have to finish top six, you have to finish 10th, you have to finish top half, what, whatever else. I think they can sit and feel like they're in a good place at the moment. And that's why it feels to me that if there are opportunities that come up that are worth investing in, they'll go for it as opposed to really targeting specific areas because the season is as it is. One other possible hurdle we need to overcome when it comes to transfers, something that Angus Kinnear did tell us when we spoke to him is that they won't buy filler for this squad. They're only going to buy players that are going to incrementally improve the squad. So if you are to get a specialist left back and then a central midfielder, they're not going to come cheaply unless you can really unearth a bargain or a gem. I mean, and let's face it, we've got good evidence uh, to that effect from the previous transfer window in terms of Cork, Urente, Rafinha. Even still, you're probably looking at somewhere between 40 and 50 million as an absolute basic entry-level figure to get those two positions filled with players who are going to improve this squad. That's a lot of money to commit. 
Well, take Rodrigo de Paul, who Leeds were obviously linked with right the way through the summer window, or certainly towards the back end of it. And as it was, they never got close to his valuation at Udinese. Udinese were wanting somewhere close to about £35 million, and, and Leeds were a long way short of that. And for all the, the talk about him and for all the constant speculation, that didn't really get far beyond a, a conversation about him because the numbers didn't add up. And, and I think what demonstrated that in the end was DePaul liking tweets, really kind of flagging up the fact that he, he wanted to go and that he was interested in the move. And I think that was because he could feel that it wasn't happening and that the progress wasn't coming around. And in that window where it seemed like a big opportunity for him to to land on a really decent transfer, it, it wasn't materialising. One of the things to bear in mind in this window is that there are really big problems in France at the moment. They've had big issues with the TV deal that, that they agreed that the broadcaster who took on the last contract doesn't seem to have the money to fund it properly. It looks like it's going to leave clubs with shortfalls in the budgets and, and significant ones because, as anybody knows, that follows the, the TV deals over here. At the, the highest level, they are worth a fortune and, and clubs do budget on them. Um, clubs do base their the transfer expenditure on what they expect to come through the door. So you can assume that the French market will be pretty appealing suddenly to clubs in other countries who perhaps have more cash um, and and are able to squeeze French clubs in a way that they wouldn't have been previously. And I think that's something that that I'll be watching quite closely through January is whether Leeds see anything in France that they think is worth doing because valuations, wages or or whatever else might be at a lower level or or players might be, be much more open to moving on the basis that things are, are pretty un, uncertain there. There's been quite a bit of chat about that, and I do think that most recruitment departments who are worth their salt will be keeping a very, very close eye on France to see how it develops over there and to see how willing clubs are to, to let players move on. Was that a factor in the Rafinha deal, that they were getting ahead of the game on it slightly and getting some cash in? Because I know there has been there were worries about the deal ahead of this the actual collapse of it. Nobody said that to me specifically, although you can't ignore... The fact that the the fee that they took in for Rafinha was slightly less, although I think when add-ons and everything are considered, it'll work out much the same, but slightly less than they paid up front to take him from, from Sporting in Portugal um, just 12 months earlier. It was kind of odd in that sense. And Rafinha was quoted in by ESPN Brazil as saying that Ren had said to him that it would take £60 million to get him out, or €60 million Euros to get him out of there. And, and in the end, it was nothing like that. Although I think, you know, there's an argument to be had about whether or not he was actually worth sixty million, and whether that was a realistic fee to to expect. But certainly, from from speaking to journalists who cover Ren and and from listening to what was said by people at the club, that was never part of the explanation. You know, that it was never it was never said that there might be problems coming with the TV deal, and and they wanted to protect themselves or guard themselves against that. But I would reckon that having taken in seventy million euros, seventy million pounds, right at the end for him um, it won't do Ren any harm because clearly a lot of clubs over there are going to feel the pinch now Final thought on the transfer window and maybe this is one for the two windows ahead uh, uh, discussion would you be surprised if Leeds United refreshed things in wide areas next summer maybe and the, the one player I'm specifically thinking about there is Helder Costa who doesn't seem to have um, I mean there's still time for him yet you know we're still finding our way in this division that's the, the caveat here but he's still not pulling up any trees, is he? And his, his form is a little bit indifferent. You wonder if maybe the club might take the chance to uh, maybe move him on and bring somebody else in. Is that a scenario you could see happening? If he's not playing much, then yeah, absolutely. He, he was back on the bench at Old Trafford, but evidently there'd been the um, the change in rule during the week. So no shift to five subs. And, and actually Leeds were one of the clubs who voted against that. They they wanted to keep it at three. There were, there were in the end a lot of clubs 
who did oppose the switch and it didn't go through. I, I, I found it quite interesting when we asked Bielsa about this. I, I said to him, because he quite often in response to these questions will say, look, this is down to the rule makers and I do what whatever I'm told to do. But I was saying to him, you know, clubs do have to vote specifically on this. So what is your stance and, and where, the, where the leads as a club stand on it? And he answered it by saying that he was aware of the argument that had been going on between Jurgen Klopp and Chris Wilder and saying that it was kind of important to appreciate both points of view, to listen to both and to understand where they were coming from. But he didn't actually want to commit on how he saw it and what he thought was best, even though Leeds had, had voted for three rather than five. And I wonder whether I wonder whether he just doesn't want to be seen as sort of influencing the debate on this, whether he, he wants to take his own view, but actually he would rather that everybody was free to have their say and, and that you should just get on with it however the vote does fall. But they have gone back to nine subs. So nine subs allowed Costa to come back onto the bench at Old Trafford. He'd been missing against Newcastle, even though he, he was fit. And Bielsa hadn't really explained that, which made you wonder whether it was a performance thing um, as opposed to a tactical thing. At £50 million, I mean, if Costa isn't featuring much and if he isn't getting involved, then there will come a point at which you'd, you'd have to have a, a think about that. And the best teams do refresh constantly, not en masse, because if you're doing that, you're breaking everything up. But just little additions here and there. You saw it with Liverpool with, with Jota, you know, just somebody else in that role that for, for ages people have assumed Firmino would fill forever in a day. But actually it helps to have some competition and it helps for somebody else to pick up the slack when it isn't quite going for Firmino. So it's possible. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's possible. And I think for Costa, there's a bit of a battle to get back involved now, especially because Bielsa seems to have such a high opinion of Perveda, albeit as a, an impact sub at the moment, but clearly he thinks that there's plenty to come from him. I think part of the problem with someone like Costa is that with the EFL in the state it's in, typically you would look for a championship club pushing for promotion to try and sign someone like Costa, but you do wonder if the money's going to be there for that. That's true. I mean, how would you feel as a, a man who, who hates anything financial, Michael, feel about getting rid of Costa or even loaning him out while we're still paying for him? I mean, we've gone down that route before on me in the Premier League and it didn't work out brilliantly paying the wages of people who aren't playing for us. But um, I don't know. I think we should probably shouldn't write him off just yet. But as Phil said, the, the rise of Pervader and Hernandez coming back into the scene does seem to knock him further down the pecking order. It does remind me, you know, about 12 or 13 years ago, we got a, a sofa from DFS. You know, you get the four years interest-free credit for the sofa. And then we got a, it was a cream sofa and we got a puppy and the puppy chewed through the sofa and sat on it, completely ruined it. So we ended up replacing it before we'd even paid for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it it does happen. But I mean, given that every club now um, is in the habit of amortising fees over the length of a player's contract, and given that when you sign players like Costa and then Rafinha and Rodrigo, you, you've you got to give them long-term deals. You're not going to sign any of them on, on short-term deals. That is the, the risk you run. I, I think on, you know, on the grounds that you're comparing... Costa to a sofa from DFS. I think um, I think there's some improvement improvement to be made there. Um, and it's like I say, it's it's hard to predict because Bielsa obviously likes him and, and has played him, you know, a reasonable amount through last season and and at the start of this season. But I think when you fall behind somebody like Rafinha, it becomes difficult because I don't see him, I don't see him leaving a lot of chinks of light for you to get back into that side. He looks consistent and he looks really talented and and very very good. And it, it will be will be a battle for Costa to get a game there. But can you sit on him and put your feet up? That's the question. I'll ask him next time I see him. We are knee deep in Christmas week. So the first thing to say is Merry Christmas. Do have a, a lovely time, won't you? If you are spending time with your family. I know we're not allowed to anymore, but you may have some that are close. We are allowed to. Um, it's just that you're only allowed to go for the day. So if like us, you're planning to go to Newcastle, 
so that. <laughs> the, other, the other major question is, do you actually want to? Um, and just in case my mother-in-law is listening <laughs> to this, absolutely, yes, 100%. There was a certain glee in your voice there, Phil, I have to say, when you said, nope, can't do that. Oh, bless her. Gone to great effort she has, I, I, in all seriousness. And I, I suspect quite a lot of people across the country who, A, spent a lot of money planning for Christmas and B, gone to a lot of effort to make it happen, only to see it all destroyed on um, on Saturday night. I will make sure I edit out the long silence and the eye roll that you gave before you answered that question. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I will do. Uh, We've got two games this week then to look ahead to. We've got two old school British managers, if you were to believe the the simplified headlines in Sean Dyche and Sam Allardyce. Burnley at noon on the 27th. That one is on Sky Sports. And then West Brom on the 29th at 6pm on Amazon. That one. So let's do them in order, shall we? Or do you want to take them as a pair? Whatever, Whatever you think. I sort of hate saying that these are the games that Leeds need to win and need to to focus on, focus on. I mean, focus on every game. But it sounds fairly negative, doesn't it? And you you feel that there's the potential in Bielsa's squad to actually be quite comfortably clear of of all this that's going on at the bottom. But you know that there has been a little bit of progress made by clubs who were otherwise struggling. Parker is slowly starting to get a tune out of of Fulham and, and get some points on the board. Burnley are up to double figures, having been very slow to to get going. Sheffield United is still. A mile adrift, but I think now you've got Allardyce in at West Brom, the expectation, certainly in a cliched sense, would be that he will dredge up more points um, in that sort of scrap and that sort of battle than than Billich might have done. Although I thought the decision with Billich was was really harsh in the way that, that it was, was handled. But again, if Leeds do well out of these two games, they'll be over 20 points with more than half the season to go. They'll They'll shoot up the league. They will be a long way clear of what's going on in the bottom three and I, I keep going back to it but it the purpose of this season is to settle in this league and and to to find defeat in this league and on that basis the teams that you really have to worry about are, are the ones that are, are below you and and that is why the, the start has been so healthy um, for Bielsa because it has given them a very big step towards the, the point at which they would be safe. When it comes to Burnley, we are recording this before they play Wolves so they've only played 12 games so far of which they've won two, drawn four, lost six. It's been a lot more of a struggle for them this season. Uh, why is that, do we think? Well, a little bit like Billich, there are clearly issues between Daesh and the board, if, if what you read is to be believed. And we've got a very good Burnley reporter, Andy Jones, who's, who's written a lot about this. It, it's not sweetness and light over there. I, I think I'm kind of thinking out loud about how Daesh might be seeing this, but he, he has done a good job of consolidating Burnley's position as a Premier League club. And the, the, there almost certainly comes a point at which you want to move from being a side who make the best of what they've got and make do with a pretty low budget to a side who who start to push the boat out slightly and and, and you know and and give a manager like him who's clearly very very ambitious guy the chance to to change the team and and to expand a little bit you know to to change and and to be more competitive it it hasn't happened the kind of big signing for them during the summer was Dale Stevens which you know is is not really no issue with Stevens. He's a good player, but it's not really anybody's idea of a transfer which turns Burnley from the side that they've been for so many years into something different or something better. And it feels a little bit like one of those classic scenarios of bad things coming to a club who at some stage were always going to be in danger of, of this catching up with them. And I think, in you know, to, to cut a long story short, they haven't progressed, have they? They haven't progressed. They haven't changed. They haven't really evolved. And suddenly they find themselves in, in this position that is going to be it's going to be tricky to get out of. Although I have to say, I, I still kind of fancy them to be okay at the end of the season. 
who's Dale Stevens and where did he come from and how much did he cost? That shows how much I've uh, I've been keeping tabs on Burnley. I did see this one described as the most Brexit signing of the summer. Yeah, I think what you'd see a, a very Burnley signing um, in that he's English and he's pretty conventional and you know you weren't talking about a, a Rodrigo coming from Ren with um, sporting Lisbon background and um, a bit of Brazilian flair. Stevens came from Brighton uh, and if you want to remember him, I'm pretty confident I'm not getting this wrong. He was the player who was sent off against Middlesbrough on that day when Brighton and Middlesbrough were head-to-head level on points trying to take second place on um, the last weekend of the season. Really good player in the championship for Brighton, genuinely, genuinely was and and a big part of the, the side that came up under Chris Hutton. How much he cost, I honestly don't remember. I couldn't tell you and I would need to do a bit of digging on that one, but it won't have been a huge amount. And I think that kind of underlines one of the things that will be frustrating, Dice, is that they have stayed up season after season and he's having a transfer window where the marquee arrival is Dale Stevens. Again, no offence to to him. Um, And it must be, you know, there must be a bit of envy looking over the Pennines to Leeds where they go up and it's 100 million quid on Rodrigo and Rafinha and Llorente and, and Robin Koch. You know, it is a it is a different a different state of affairs over here. I don't remember the Brighton-Middlesbrough fixture, I'm afraid, but you have made the classic mistake there, Phil, of thinking that I care about Brighton or Middlesbrough. I'd certainly Brighton versus Middlesbrough. We haven't half all forgotten about the championship, have we? <laughs> I had a look the other day at the table. Is, is it still going? It, it's, it is, yeah. Just to see who was where, and I realised that I haven't been paying any attention to it at all, apart from watching Sheffield Wednesday um, struggle about at the bottom. But I may, I may be totally wrong about that with Stevens, but I'm certain it was him who got sent off for a sort of knee-high challenge. If it's wrong, somebody will correct me, because somebody always does. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about these two teams is it feels like they're almost a cautionary tale of the Premier League, and that this is what we don't want Leeds to be, is that even when you were relatively well-established as Burnley are, and even when you keep coming up into this division as West Brom do, that you start every season as one of the four or five favourites to go down. And somehow we almost instantly feel above that, which I know we shouldn't because we're not comfortable in this this league yet, but these are the games we need to win because of that. We need to put them, for want of a better phrase, kind of in their place. There's a reason for that, and and it's, because not every club can exist without a ceiling, can they? For some clubs, and actually for most clubs, regardless of how ambitious you want to be or how much money you try and throw at it or what you think can happen in a fairy tale sense, there's only so far you can go. And, and that, I think, applies to Burnley. Bournemouth are a good example of that as well. A lot of years in the Premier League under Eddie Howe, but ultimately we're only going to go so far. And, and because of that, there was always the danger has happened last season that, that eventually... It was all going to dry up a bit and and they were going to get sucked in. I think, you know, Leeds have have more potential in the way that they can grow, in the way they can grow Ellen Road, in the the money they're likely to have available for players and and the way they're likely to spend it. But there still is the reality of their track record over, you know, 100 years versus Liverpool's or Manchester United's, which if you compare trophies, there is no real comparison to be drawn. So, even at Leeds, where you would like to think, can they become a Champions League club again? Can they go further than that? Can they win the title again? It's a it's a massive, massive ask in the way that for Burnley to be anything more than a mid-table side or potentially Europa League, you know, to go beyond that. It's not impossible, but it's not far off either because the, the structure and, and the finances just make it so difficult. Just looking at the West Brom fixture in particular, they recorded an XG of 0.04 versus Aston Villa in the last few days, barely a shot on target. So it's going to be a, a vastly different clash to the one that we experienced under under Billich. 
worth just explaining again briefly what XG is because a lot of people hear it, but not everybody will understand what it is. It's basically a measure. It's a subjective measure, let's not forget, but it's um, it's a measure nonetheless of the quality of chances. So who it falls to and where it falls to them, basically. Each one is given a score and it's what you are expected to score based on the chances that you've had in the game. So theirs was 0.04 against Villa. So basically nothing, no chances. Yeah, it's just, I mean, they, they had one shot and goal, but it, it is to say that, that in a million years they were never going to score in that game unless it had gone on for about eight weeks and everybody had kind of dropped dead through exhaustion, which does make you think, was it a good decision? Will it prove to be a prudent decision? I mean, I, I've taken a sort of passing interest in Tony Pulis at Sheffield Wednesday because Pulis is the sort of go-to coach that you would kind of strike out for in Wednesday's position if you needed or wanted somebody to to come in and have a really big impact and to get you out of the trouble that they're clearly in. You would look at Pulis and say, if we can get him, then we'll we'll have him in the championship. But they've started incredibly slowly under him. You know, the, the impetus has been very, very slender. Whereas you kind of had it in your head that Pulis might come in and within four or five weeks have them third bottom or, or perhaps out of the bottom three. It's been far more of, of a battle like that. And it makes me wonder, and I might be totally wrong, but whether the era of these coaches who can do sort of desperate firefighting jobs is, is kind of passing. And, you know, that again will be demonstrated with Allardyce at, at West Brom. You would assume that Allardyce would have it in him to make the difference there and, and to drag enough points together to keep them up and, and make them safe. But is it actually going to happen? Is that how it's going to work out? It, it's not fair at all to judge it on on one game. But that was a very, very poor start on Sunday. You know, the, that was the, probably the, the worst dead cat bounce I've ever seen Ever. I mean, they, they just they didn't create anything. They didn't look like they'd transformed massively from the side that the village had. And I know there's only so much you can do in, in a short space of time, but really, I'm, I'm not sure what optimism or confidence you would draw from that. I was having similar thoughts, actually, about the likes of Allardyce and Pulis, whether or not it's they're in the, the final stages now and it's diminishing returns from them in the same way as in the past we've seen people like Ron Atkinson, who were kind of a, you can give him the job and he'll he'll turn something around for you, and Harry Redknapp, and they were kind of phased out with those managers. I wonder if we're in the same stage with the sort of 2000s bunch. I mean, it's hilarious what's happened to Sheffield Wednesday, looking at Pulis. They've got four defeats on the bounce. I'm just looking at the championship table now. God, I'm glad we're not there anymore. Can I just say that? Uh, so you've, you've got Wickham who are bottom on, on 12 points, and they're on the same points as Sheffield Wednesday, and they're only above them by virtue of a better goal difference. It's Looking pretty bleak, isn't it? They've got an uphill task and uh, just slightly further up, Forest. Uh, just to return to a theme that we brought up a few weeks ago, they've got 17 points. So they've still not caught our points total from last season when they were they were hunting us down, I believe it was. that Was it Michael Dawson who said that they were going to come and try and catch us? I think uh, it may have been. Yeah, some, some big clubs down at the bottom there, Forest, Derby, Sheffield Wednesday, a lot. Plenty at stake. I mean, no, obviously it should be said as well that the Wednesday had the points deduction, so the 12-point the tally isn't a, a properly fair reflection of, of what they've managed to gather. But as I say, you know, having expected that that Pulis would go in there and, and find a way to make a very quick impact, it's been an extremely slow burn. But in saying that, if you look at the bottom of the league, that there, there is scope to get out of that quickly because a lot of clubs are treading water. We've got to be careful, I think, here not to uh, to poke too much fun at other clubs whilst we still don't know our own fate this season. I am genuinely only just having a, a bit of a laugh at the expense of others. So, Tomas is at hand then. Burnley 27th, West Brom 29th, six points is not beyond us here and I confidently predict we will get six points. Can you tell there's confidence in my voice? 
There was right up until about the final two words, at which <laughs> at which point you were slightly going into reverse gear. I think there should be, yeah, there's easily the potential for six points from these, which is not to say that the Leeds will get them. And, and it's hard to imagine anything other than Burnley and West Brom approaching these games exactly in the way that your less positive sides have this season. I think it will be low blocks. I think it will be it will be low risk. The thing I would be counting on is that with the exception of set pieces, which again were a problem at Old Trafford or you know, a concession from a corner, it wouldn't seem to me that they necessarily have the, the counter-attacking threat in their lineups to pick leads off in the way that Leicester did and Palace did and and also Manchester United on, on the counter last night. You know, you're not talking about the same calibre of team. But my God, the defending at corners needs to be decent against these two. Set pieces is entirely my worry as well. It's more or less the, the top and bottom of it, particularly if we're going into this without Liam Cooper. As much as we've at points criticised him this year, he is still one of the best players in the air. <laughs> that is one thing as well that Allardyce is very, very good at, is planning and mapping out set pieces, an, an absolute strength of his. So I've, I can now, uh, having confidently predicted six points, I can now imagine a Charlie Taylor free kick getting whipped in straight onto the head of Chris Wood, who climbs above a, a half-broken Diego Llorente to head it into the uh, the net at Ellen Road. Brilliant. And then gives it the big I am to an empty cup. <laughs> Cupping his ear again, was it? Is that what he was doing before? <laughs> God. No, we'll win these. We'll be all right. We'll be all right. If not, we'll, should we say four points as a bare minimum is a good return from this? Yes, I think so. I think it would be a good return, regardless of where they are in the league. Four points takes you over 20. Um, and in the grand scheme, that would be good. I think even three from them is is fine. In truth, because it's, it's, as Phil mentioned, it gets us to 20, it gets us on target for comfortably surviving. But the free picks, the set pieces, I, I almost don't want to have to watch them. The problem with with a three-point return from this, Michael, is that it means we lose one of these two games and losing either of these two games will cause panic amongst our fans because people will be saying we shouldn't be losing to the likes of X. It won't panic the Elsa, though. I don't think it'll panic people. It'll just annoy them intensely and, and people will not enjoy... The coverage afterwards if Allardyce turns over Bielsa at the Hawthorns because you know exactly how it's going to go if he does. Smashing down a pint of wine in celebration, why not? <laughs> uh, right, let's pick some ones to watch then for this uh, this Christmas week. Uh, the the player, the battle, the issue that's going to be the thing to keep an eye on. Set pieces, both games. Set pieces. Oh, this is lazy. 100%. This, this is, is la- this lazy, is... lazy journalism. You're picking one to watch for two games. I want two, okay. two separate issues. Okay, well, I'm going to go... <laughs> Free kicks for one and corners for the other. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll go for set pieces with Allardyce because, as I say, that is one of his strengths and he's he's very good at organising that. Actually, looking forward to seeing Charlie Taylor back because he's, it's taken him a bit of time to get going over at Burnley and, and taken him a little bit of time to, to properly establishing himself. And, and I know it, it, you know, I know he'd left under a cloud and it was all um, a bit bitter and twisted when he went, but... I always liked Charlie. He was a he was a nice lad. He, to my mind, was a a good player with with bags of potential as well. And I think I'm right in saying that I read that he's gone past the hundred appearances mark for for Burnley as well. So him and Chris Wood back on the pitch, hopefully to get beaten as they did last time Leeds played over there in the League Cup. But yeah, look out for those two. What are you two predicting them from this, Michael? Three points. Phil, four points. We'll see, won't we? Right, you can subscribe to the Athletic right now and get another subscription as a gift for free, the perfect Christmas present for that person that you are undoubtedly still scratching around for and don't know what to get. You can read all Phil's stuff, get all our podcasts ad-free, head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Merry Christmas. We'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. 
The Phil Hay Show.